Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to another episode of the History of Being Black. I'm your hostess. I don't want to say with the mostest because I usually have the least to add to these wonderful conversations, but I am here to help engage another wonderful dialogue with one of our thought leaders that has agreed to join us here on the podcast, Dr. Gloria J. Wilson, Assistant Professor of Art and Visual Culture Education at the University of Arizona. Welcome to the History of Being Black, Dr. Wilson. Hi, thank you so much, Eunice. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Thank you so much. You have such an interesting background and course of study. And so first, I would like for you to tell us just how you got interested in your expertise. Absolutely. That is a great question. Um, So um, I'll share just a little bit about my own um, um, subjectivity and positionality, which is what I always encourage students to do when they're when they're engaging in a topic, um, because I think it, it's quite interesting to understand, you know, what a person, what sort of history a person brings into the room with them. Um, and so I, it starts for me, at least with my parents. Um, my father um, was born in Mobile, Alabama. Um, he is a dark skinned black man um, who grew up dur- during Jim Crow. Uh, and he was in the military uh, and met my mother while he was stationed in the Philippines. Uh, and so I'm a military brat. Uh, I've lived in quite a few places, bo- born in North Dakota, uh, lived in Washington State, in the Philippines, in South Carolina, um, and so on. <laughs> and so what, what, um, what sparked uh, my curiosity about race um, and my questions about race First uh, is when we moved to the States from the Philippines. And I remember my mother um, brushing my hair and she doesn't remember this. I try to have this conversation with her. Um, but she she said to me uh, and my sister that, um, you know, because we we were entering into a different type of school system. We started school in the Philippines. And so then we moved to the States. And my mother said that, you know, if we were to be given forms to fill out in school, that we were to check the box marked black. And so I write about this and I talk about this. Um, and, you know, I'm quite, I'm quite uh, open, you know, about my experience and how I arrived to where I am today and, and my deep interest in sort of understanding how things are constructed, uh, mainly identity and racial identity. Um, and so, you know, as any six-year-old might do, they listen to their mom um, and just kind of go with it. You know, I didn't ask any questions, but I thought, you know, okay. Um, and so just in thinking about that at the time, and now that I'm an older adult and reflecting on, you know, what she um, instructed us to do, um, it, I, I'm understanding how identity um, at that time was limited, meaning the choice of identifying was, was limited, you know? And so this is in the 80s. 
really. Um, and so I left that behind. I didn't remember that. It didn't trigger anything for me until my dad retired and moved the family to Alabama, to Mobile. Um, I grew up with an older sister who is now um, deceased, uh, but she was probably three shades darker than me, closer in complexion with my father. Um, and he told me that we would be treated differently based on the way that we looked. And so what's ironic is I look more like his mother, my father's mother. Um, and so we can go, you know, we can go. You know what, even when you talk about having that memory from being six years old, it makes me wonder when did I ever first check a box that said black? Because it would not have made that much of an impact on me. But mm -hmm. I'm even trying to remember when was the first time did I have to know that as an identifier for myself? Absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah. And so what was the question that you had even at that age with checking the box black because there weren't that many options? Was it that you were negating a part of your culture or was it that you just had never had to identify either way to that point? Absolutely. Yeah. So being a military kid, um, you grow up with other children, or at least from what I understand now in my generation, because military kids today grew, grow up differently, it seems, you know, just in my interactions with some students who've had military parents. Um, but at in those times, I mean, we just played with everybody, you know, and so we had a Panamanian neighbor. Um, we had a neighbor from Portugal, um, you know, we just, we were just being children, you know? And so it wasn't until we moved to the States. And even after that moment, I mean, at six, you still can't even reconcile. I have a nephew right. um, who is now 21, but when he was 10 years old, um, he would call me white. He would say, why is auntie white? You know? So I'm, 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 I'm thinking about, you know, how children, um, come to understand what all of this means, which then takes us back to the notion of how it's socially constructed. Um, and, that, and that's what we're really going to focus on today, the social constructs mm -hmm. and, and how media has influenced the social constructs. Uh, I think about when you say your nephew thought you were white, uh, for our listeners who don't see you are a lighter complexion. <laughs> I remember my younger brother's uh, second grade teacher was a lighter complexion black woman, but he thought she was white. So when he would come home and tell my mom things that his teacher said about black kids, my mom went up there to have her head. And when she saw that it was a black woman, she had to say to my brother, this is a black woman. And so Absolutely. as a child, you don't really understand gradations of race. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then at some point you, you are sort of um, given cues um, that something about you is different. Um, and so, you know, fast forward even to high school, my undergrad experience, my grad school experience, and probably an experience that many Black people um, can identify with is being the only one or one of few, you know, in a room with white people. And so that is a very distinct experience um, that one um that one thinks about, you know, when they're in these rooms, you know, and, and maybe we don't have the vocabulary for, for why we're feeling the way that we're feeling other than we know that we're different. Um, and everybody's experience, you know, up to the point where they understand that there's difference um, 
it differs and it varies. But what I've understood at this point, you know, in, in the work that I've done is that oftentimes we don't have the vocabulary in order to articulate what we may be feeling at the time, you know, and even the vocabulary to tease out um, what racial identity is, what blackness is. Um, and even though even though it is a construct that was created by um, those who both that, who are both settler colonialists of the USA um, and who have colonized other um, countries and continents, um, we we are are living out um, the everyday experiences of trauma and violence associated with how people understand race, and and you know that is what is. <laughs> So, so let me ask you, from the curiosity you have from your personal experience to uh, becoming uh, in academia and a, a teacher, a professor in this, do you feel like you have a better grasp on it now or does it keep changing? It does. It seems like it's such a fluid idea when we talk about the construct of race. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I do feel like I have vocabulary um, and I do feel like I have um, some analytical tools to help sort of um, explain what might be happening, um, in, for instance, in the visual culture that we live in, you know, sort, sort of the things that we see every day. And, um, a lot of times I like to start with the example of Birth of a Nation. So the film Birth of a Nation <laughs> that, um, was produced, I believe, in 1915, um, and was first shown in the White House. Okay. And so, and so what people don't, you know, don't know, and why would they know really, um, is that, um, Birth of a Nation was more or less, um, a genius production of the time. So when we're thinking about technical technology and what was happening in the world of media, Birth of a Nation was sort of groundbreaking in the way of its technological um, uh, modality, okay? And so, but what people were not talking about is how highly racist. Right, well film. talk to us about that. Those of us who have not seen that version of Birth of a Nation, like even when you talk about the technical modality, like just break that down for us as a starting point of black people portrayals in America. Sure, absolutely. And so while I'm not a film, I'm not a film expert by any means. And so let me go ahead and contextualize my area of study um, by saying that I am I am um, educated as an art, um, an art teacher first, because I taught in public schools prior to moving into higher ed. And so I was trained as an art teacher um, and trained in the more traditional modes of expression. So like painting and drawing and sculpture and ceramics and things like that. But I always had an interest in pop culture and also textiles and garment making, which is kind of, you know, a different direction, but it, it all comes together at some point and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about it. Um, but so in in the work that I do now, it's situated in art education, which um, isn't a very interdisciplinary field. Um, but essentially what I do is I prepare others to go out and teach in the field of art and visual culture education. And so that can look any number of ways. Um, most times people automatically 
think, oh, it's just painting and, and ceramics and photography. Um, but there is sort of um, a genre, an area of the art world um, and artists that feel that they have a political responsibility to right. speak to social issues, you know, to address the social issues. And so while technical skill is cool and, and might help you advance, you know, um, a sort of a social concern, um, the area that I focus on um, is, is through a cultural studies lens, okay? And so um, cultural studies um, broadly asks what, what are the ways that the world um, is classified and organized? You know, so we're thinking about the world broadly as culture. Um, and so I, I enjoy pop culture. I enjoy my dose of reality TV. Oh, I wow. Enjoy- <laughs> okay. We're definitely going to get there. We're definitely going to get to reality TV. We're definitely going to get there. Oh, and so, you know, looping back around to your question about birth of a nation, that, that is my entry point into my discussion within my classroom about, um, how racial constructions happened in our visually mediated world. And so even though Birth of a Nation is a silent film, and it's quite a long film, I believe it's three hours long. And so if you can sit through three hours of silence and violence, wow. you know, and not even just the obvious violence of the Klan, but the violence against the biracial main character who is um, a male character, um, and, and who is opposite his love interest, who happens to be a white woman. And so just in the visual, the visual is so powerful, you don't even need words, you know? So you see this courtship happening back and forth with the backdrop of the war, the backdrop of the Klan. Um, but as the movie progresses, um, the I'll just call him the Black character. Um, he becomes villainized. So, you know, this is... This is a narrative that has carried, <laughs> that has solidified and been carried out through um, through media, um, through the art world, um, in order to sort of construct the identity of blackness associated with terror, associated with violence. You know, and so you see this black character adjacent to this white female character. Um, and she, of course, is clutching her pearls for lack of a well, better way to say it. Right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, this also set up the myth of the black male rapist. OK. And so, you know, white men needed a narrative um, to to support their violence against black men by saying that when we go off to the war, you know, let me share with you, wife, that you need to protect yourself from the black man, right? When really, and I think that this is true, and this might be my own opinion, but I I would say more often than not, black people are just more concerned with being all right. Right. (laughs) Right, so we're... (laughs) It's my own business. We're not trying to cause no problems. Right. We're just minding our business. We're minding our business. And so, you know, you think about the span of time, you know, and I've just gone back a hundred years, you know, and we, we, you know, pull ourselves into the current moment and we ask ourselves, you know, if we're looking through a cultural studies lens, we're asking ourselves, you know, what are the ways that we classify and organize the world? Right. So if you're taking that question and you're laying it on top of any period in history, then you begin to pull all of the pieces together to see how race has been constructed through economics, um, through policy, 
through education and through visual culture, which, you know, I use as a pedagogical tool. I use it to teach about race because if there's one thing that I know is that you assign students or any type of learner to watch a film, to watch a television show, to watch reality TV, and then supply them with a few theories, class is never long enough to have these conversations. You know, so I've introduced um, Get Out as a film um, to teach with in my class. I've introduced Beyonce's Lemonade visual album as a pedagogical tool. And people will always have comments about it, you know. And so I taught a class um, a couple of years ago um, on the construction of whiteness, same using Birth of a Nation. And then I, I had students watch Black Klansmen. And the same trope of the white woman clutching her pearls is evident in both. And you've got a span of a hundred years, you know? And so it's interesting you use the term when you say construction of whiteness, because honestly, Mm -hmm. from the beginning, it's always been a deconstruction of black people, right? Mm -hmm. Breaking us down, making Mm -hmm. us these uh, caricatures of ideals that they wanted to perpetuate. But they also did have to construct and build up this idea of what it means to be white, because the truth was the opposite of what they built. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, we have to, again, we have to go back to um, asking what are the strategies um, that people use in order to organize and classify the world for, for their own benefit. And so if we, if we want to, you know, trace the beginnings um, of what has produced Blackness we have to start with the Middle Passage, you know, and coming to America. And prior to that, um, there were settler colonialists that were interested in maximizing value of this land that we now know as North America, you know, and so they wiped out the indigenous population as much as they could. So the strategy is I need to remove people so that I can take ownership of the land, take possession, steal the land, essentially. And then now I need people. Now I need, now I need people. And so where do I get the free labor? So I go and steal people. From a the, way, the way you say it, it sounds horrible. Sounds like it wouldn't be <laughs> the, the man in the big white hat and the hero, yeah. the way you say it, you know? Yeah. And so it, it's, if we look at it as a, a strategy, you know, then we we can then enter into the conversation of how blackness was produced. Because if you talk to um, Africans, if you talk to what we would say black people in the Caribbean, they identify ethnically first, because why would they have a reason to identify as black? I mean, you know, they, they live in a space where blackness is all around. And so it's easier to identify then by the region where you come from. You know, I am Kenyan, I am Nigerian, I am Trinidadian. Um, But students have told me, students from, you know, other parts of the diaspora, when they come to the States, they tell me this is when I become Black, Mm. you know? And so that further informs like, okay, you know, what are the complex ways that Blackness is, is produced? Um, and constructed. And so I, I would say that it is also a um, an act of, of survival. So if you hear Black people from other parts of the diaspora, for instance, in Europe, talk about why they don't have a collective solidarity, 
they often refer to the civil rights movement as Black Americans, you know, sort of collective collective action toward uh, liberation. And so then we had those years prior um, together under the same conditions of trauma. And so we we recognize one another as as kin in many ways. Um, and and not not everybody, <laughs> but we you know, we do recognize each other, you know, under sort of the collective auspices of, you know, what we can imagine liberation might be. And so in the construct of race, um, do you have any thoughts on why is it so important for certain people to be identified? Um, I think more so than white, it's more important to be able to identify someone as black. In, sure. in, in the thinking of why, why does it even matter, right? We would say, why do mm-hmm. I need to check a box? That Absolutely. goes to the bigger picture of what's the point of it all. Why was Absolutely. It- Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you know, I... I you know, I, I even point to policy documents and I call the census a policy document, right? So that thing is mandatory that we fill it out and identify, okay? And so here comes the, the conundrum um, because they have now included um, areas where you can check mixed race um, or other and you can write it in. And I tell people, you know, if you... Um, if you have identified as black at any moment in your life, if, you know, you, through parentage, um, um, then the census is not time to be flowery, you know, it, because if we understand the purpose of the census, or at least what is told to us, the purpose of the census is um, to identify groups um, who who um, who would benefit from further assistance, for instance, so funding and resources, then the higher registers of us would want to support that, you know? So it's like, oh, okay, you know, well, of course, of course. Um, and so the question becomes, um, why, like you said, why, why is it necessary um, to identify. And I think, um, you know, at the most basic level and pulling from, you know, cognitive psychology, I'm telling you, I pull from every, because it takes a lot to even try to process what it means in literal daily action of why do we have to check a box? Right, right. And so the brain wants us to to organize anyway. So it starts kind of at a biological level. You know, we, you know, at some point in human history, we needed to identify species of plants in order to know what was good to eat and what was, you know, what we needed to stay away from. Um, And so we just, we have, we have this innate ability or this innate desire to want to organize things or to, to place things in categories. Um, and it's so it it sort of it serves, um, you know, the social the social the socialization of um, believing that race is something that is biologically inherent um, is probably a comfortable place for the brain to be. However, um, when when that plays out as a social stratification is when it becomes a problem. Right. 
Because like you yeah. said, your upbringing, you played with kids just because they were kids. That was yeah. the box they checked was they mm -hmm. were little people. It didn't matter mm -hmm. their color. Um, right. I think about, I love animal videos. And so if you can show me a video of a chicken and a dog playing chase, mm -hmm. they don't worry about what they are in order to interact. And so Absolutely. I think so much of us start out not that way, but because of the way our brains are conditioned in our education system is we need to know, what are you? What are mm -hmm. you mixed with? <laughs> what right. box are you checking? Right, right, right. And then Absolutely. it becomes this other thing, uh, mm -hmm. which, which again, we can talk about forever. I know that with the census, when you brought that up, since we recently just completed the census, um, that I was told once that because black people tend to not complete the census, mm -hmm. the problem is, for whatever reason, there's a distrust of government or why they're asking these questions. It said that then you build a new school in this neighborhood and it's already overcrowded because right. they built it based on those numbers. Or like you said, funding for programs. Right. If we are to believe that is the purpose of said thing and it is not to continue in gerrymandering and redlining and all the underside sided things of why we need to know who live over there. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. It's, it's, you know, the question of why, you know, why are black people so uh, skeptical, you know? Um, why, why, um, you know, anytime I'm cynical in class, I, I draw from, um, this notion of Southern skepticism and I'll tell students all the time. I'm like, look, I spent almost 20 years in the deep South. There is a lot bit of Southern skepticism in this body. And, you know. you know, I think that Southern skepticism, that's a wonderful way to say it. I've, I've never thought about it that way, but I also, I think it's what triggers your survival. Um, Absolutely. Because by the time they say, hey, come on over here and join us on this hayride, <laughs> like, Absolutely. you know what? Probably not. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm good on that, Absolutely. Jen. <laughs> so now in your, in your own personal life and in your studies and what you teach, you know, there's so much that we can talk about when you go from birth of a nation. Most people, myself included, when we're watching reality show, we're looking at the depiction of black folks today. We're not realizing the tone was set, as you said, over a hundred some odd years ago. Right. And the story has just been building from the first earliest stories, whether it's the uh, caricatures of black folks or the over-sexualization of black folks or the villainization and how those stories keep going on and on and on. And mm -hmm. they keep having the same result in society. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, this and this is where, again, uh, cultural studies lens helps um, helps us to understand the process um, of making something. So making a cultural um, or a social um, construct. Um, so it has to have a producer. It has to have, you know, an entity that makes the thing. And so the question becomes, well, what does it take to make the thing? You know, what are the resources that are required? Who has the resources to make the thing? And so I'm talking about this narrative of blackness here. Um, and, and even adjacent to that, you know, whiteness, because blackness isn't anything without whiteness and vice versa. It, you know, they need each other in order to do what they do, um, and, and play out in the manner that it has economically, educationally, socially, psychologically, medically, all of these, all of these things. And so you have to have, um, the producer. You also have to have the consumer, you know, so who is this construction benefiting? Who is this construction harming? Um, and that there is a strategy, you know, and so once you can unpack um, all of that and you start asking questions of what it is that you're seeing, 
um, you can you can shift between understanding how black people have been created in the visual world at the hands of white people. And then if you sort of shift the narrative to the black person who's producing a narrative that includes black people. So even if we're talking about paintings of the Harlem Renaissance or photographs of the Harlem Renaissance, I mean, they they reflect an interior um, part of black life that white people could not capture. I mean, just um, there's no way that they could capture that because they weren't even talking to each other, you know, right. or. Right. And even even when we do talk to one another, there are parts of our interior lives um, that white people um, may not ever understand just by default. You know, the fact that that hair braiding is such an intimate moment, you know, that we can remember sitting between our mother's legs and getting our hair done. Um, And so, you know, and and it's okay that that they don't know that part of our interior lives. Um, And so going back to this sort of this loop um, of the creation process. So it goes from um, production um, and then it develops this identity of sorts, you know, whatever it is, it could be, you know, pop culture. I mean, we think about um, Real Housewives, you know, that franchise and it has an identity, you know, and, and it has a model. And so if you repeat it long enough, then it sort of sticks. Right. And so, yeah, it definitely sticks. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're thinking about the, the cycle of, um, creating something, um, you'll then begin to understand, ah, you know, so if you put enough caricatures, of black people and they all have really, really dark skin and they all have really, really big lips and they're oversized and their eyes look like saucers. Um, If you repeat that enough, then it creates a narrative, right? And then it also supports the narrative um, that's written. And so, you know, Dr. Seuss was complicit in all of this too. A lot of people don't know that. He, He created the cat in the hat, but he also created war, um, war illustrations, war animations um, that were quite problematic. They were quite problematic. (laughs) In my workshops, I tend to upset, you know, teachers who are like devoted to Dr. Seuss when I have to sort of pull the curtain back and say him to y'all. But you know what? That's kind of the story of America. When you pull the curtain back, you're going to be disappointed (laughs) in the root and the origin (laughs) and the perpetuation of something that we always loved because... That's what was taught to us. Dr. Wilson, we hadn't really gotten even into a little bit of what I want to talk to you about. So hopefully you'll come back for another episode where we will talk more about not only the history of, of, of the white representation, because if you think about it, if you say the earliest films that were produced, uh, who's owning the studios? Who's owning the TV? Who's owning everything? So that's why those stories are being perpetuated. So hopefully you'll come back for another episode and we can delve more into that. But honestly, anything film related, music related, um, pop culture. I think that's like one of the biggest vices and grips racism has on this country. Cause that's mm-hmm. where people are getting their ideas, both white and black of what it means to be black. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, it, it is largely understood that across time, people learn about others who are unlike them through the media. 
And, and when I say people, I'm meaning white people or people who I have been, you know, identified as white, who identify as white. Um, they learn by and large about black and brown people through, you know, images in the media. Um, and, and, and that is a known. And so that's, you know, where we get into stereotypes and all of that. And I get into that a lot also. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love to have that conversation with you. <laughs> oh, well, we'll have that conversation. I always say, you know, white folks don't have to know a brown person to be successful. They right. don't have to ever interact with a brown person to matriculate, to succeed, right. to get right. lending, to buy homes. They can have an, a completely autonomous life free of brown people. Whereas right. brown people, we have to learn how to uh, deal with and interact and how to, uh, you know, be all things to all people. And so Absolutely. just like you said, if, if they've never had to be around a brown person and the only thing they're seeing is a real housewives of Atlanta, we're right. going to pick this up. We're going to pick this up. That yes. was in another episode. Yes. I so appreciate <laughs> you. So one of the things we try to do here on the history of being black is have action items. What can okay. we do to be the change we want to see? And so if, even just based on this conversation, I would like to encourage all of our listeners to be more responsible consumers, because as long as someone's watching, they will keep producing. And right. it's one thing to say, hey, this is horrible, but you're still consuming it. You know, Absolutely. so maybe we need to um, make that one of our 21 for 21 things. Hashtag be the change is uh, be a more responsible consumer of Absolutely. this stuff. And if that means I got to stop watching The Real Housewives. No, I don't think you have to stop watching it. You don't. It doesn't mean that necessarily. Um, and so we we have to... I'll start here. Unfortunately, we don't get the tools um, in our K-12 public school system for uh, visual literacy or media literacy. You'll find pockets of that happening in curriculum um, across the country. Um, but by and large, it is, it's not necessarily valued as much as part of the curriculum. It, it's not necessarily supported widely. Um, I, I think about, I think it was the was it the Arkansas governor who pushed back against using the 1619 um, project oh. as a curricular, you know, and so that those things always happen. That's policy. Um, and so I, I, I enjoy the medium of the podcast um, because it it is also a pedagogical tool. It is a tool. It can be used as a platform for learning. Um, and I, I do think that we should, unfortunately, do do more um, do more searching for ways um, that we can be critical viewers. So it doesn't necessarily mean we have to do away with, you know, our trash TV uh, because I love it. I, I watch popular culture um, deeply in, in, invested in it. But to understand that. If something is produced, it is necessarily selling something and it may not be it may not be something that you need to purchase, you know, up front, um, but you'll invest in it in some way. So are you investing in it in in um, ways that sort of disrupt the way that you see yourself? Right. Mm -hmm. So we start to right. think about we start to think about the procedures that that women you know, are are putting themselves under the medical procedures for enhancements, 
right? And, and I was having this conversation the other day with, with a good friend of mine who has daughters in their, uh, black daughters in their, you know, late teens, early 20s about um, research that was done in the 80s about self-esteem. And they surveyed white girls, they surveyed black girls, and the black girls didn't have self-esteem issues. Black girls were like, we're good. <laughs> I mean, we're good. And so it made me think about when was the shift, you know, where we started feeling some type of way about ourselves? And I just wonder if it ebbs and flows or if there was some pivotal shift that happened around that time um, that shifted our own views of ourselves. You know, and I don't know if that maybe was the residue of coming out of the Black Power movement you know, the 60s and 70s, Black is beautiful, you know, um, self-determination was um, the law of the land. Um, and so I'm just wondering if it if it continues to ebb and flow. And so, gosh, knowing the history of our people is just, it is so critical. It's really critical. And there are so many YouTube channels, you know, with scholars, particularly now um, under COVID, um, who are producing educational material to reach the masses, those Black babies, you know, who are not getting what they need in K-12 education. They can right. go on a YouTube channel and, you know, learn about their history. My nephew was starting to ask more questions at 21. And you say the Black babies, the white babies, and that's the how they grow up too. to be ill-informed racists because Absolutely. they're not being educated properly. Uh, Dr. Wilson, let me say, between you mentioning the 1619 Project and Women Enhancement, I'm making notes for future episodes, okay. so you okay. brought it up, and, and we're going to have to spend good. time with it. Yeah, <laughs> I really appreciate you joining us on this episode of The History of Being Black. We have so much more to dive into. This is such a great topic because it's just in all of our lives every day. So Absolutely. I hope you'll come back for another episode. I thank you guys for listening to The History of Being Black. Don't forget, hashtag be the change, hashtag 21 in 21. And we will talk to you guys next episode. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Lauren Turner. Edited by Ken Johnson. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and say it loud network production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.